Rob, welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast for our fifth podcast in this first series, looking at all things music. How are you today? Andy, I'm all the better because you've already fed me. Everyone that listened to the last podcast, remember that Andy used the old carrot stick approach to reward my podcasting with her with a piece of cake. This time she's gone down a different path and rewarded me with a lovely piece of chocolate cake. Tell me more about this cake that is very much through the digestion track at the moment. (laughs) Well, this was a piece of cake. It was a chocolate and orange cake, so I suppose a Jaffa cake. And this recipe, I have to tell you, Rob, that I got this recipe when I was probably about 12. My mum's friend gave me this recipe on this little piece of paper. I still have the little piece of paper. It's now stuck together with many pieces of sticky tape because it keeps on ripping. But I still use this chocolate cake as one of my favourite, favourite chocolate cakes. And the reason I gave you the chocolate cake with the orange marmalade through it at the beginning is that this is a very complicated but incredibly interesting topic that we're going to be looking at today. It's something called equal temperament. It's why our music in the West is different from all other types of music and the story of how we got to this thing called equal temperament is fascinating but I thought you needed a little bit of a sweetener to start with, hence the chocolate cake. Okay, so equal temperament. I've been told I have an unequal temperament. Um, So thankfully, this isn't an intervention to deal with my mood swings. It's such an interesting... I don't know where we're going, actually, because the the topic name, you know, it's not melody, it's not rhythm. It's something completely different. So let's let's get rocking. Perfect. And this thing called equal temperament, I have to say, is something that... I would say most people don't know about. I mean, musos potentially do, but but it's something that is quite outside the normal scope of music. So let's start talking about this thing called equal temperament. If we think about music, and I know that we've talked about this before, but music is rooted in nature. So if you think about the, the first man who picked up two sticks and hit them together or got a um, piece of leaf and turned it over and made a, a whistling sound from a leaf or took a bit of gut and plinged it and made a, a, a bing sound from like a string or hit a drum. These are natural sounds and we can we know that, that these sorts of sounds are 40,000 years old. They're, they're very, very old, these original sounds. But in the West... We took those original sounds and we turned them into something very, very different. We basically took those natural sounds and made them unnatural. And as a result of making them unnatural, they meant that we could write music that was different from any other culture out there. Have I confused you even more? Oh, look, I'm constantly in a state of confusion. So uh, you, you haven't added to that. But it's really interesting. So you're saying as we developed and got away from, I suppose, more organic lifestyle, the music sort of went with us. Almost. Sort of. Let's have a listen to two musical excerpts. The first one is a bit of Japanese shakuhachi playing. That's a fl- Japanese flute. And the second is a little bit of Mozart. Let's have a listen to the difference between these two.
So that's a completely natural sound with that, that Japanese flute. Now, however, listen to the Mozart for something that is totally different. Chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese. And the difference between those two is something called equal temperament. Equal temperament is the most important development in music in the last 400 years. It's quite a statement, Andy. It is quite a statement and it's absolutely true. So if we think about what equal temperament is, equal temperament was something that composers, music theorists, inventors, mathematicians, instrument makers were trying to do for for hundreds of years, which was to make music in a way that meant they could play anything without having nature in the way. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of other examples of the way we have manipulated things so that we can have maybe a better result in the end. Think about the calendar. We have 365 days in the year, but every fourth fourth year, we have a leap year. So we know that the calendar isn't really 365 days because every four year we have to have a hiccup. We know that the clock isn't exactly 24 hours, that two o'clock in the morning and two o'clock in the afternoon are actually not absolutely exact. And every, I can't remember how many years, um, in Greenwich, they give us an extra second because in actual fact, they are not absolutely equal. But to make life easier for ourselves, we've made two o'clock and two o'clock exactly the same. The same concept was invented or manipulated by musicians so that we could then have music like that Mozart compared to music like that Japanese flute. Okay, you've got to work. I've got to work with you, Andy. You've okay. got to explain more. We will talk about more and listen about more. We need to move back in time to a guy that we've actually talked about before, and that's Pythagoras. So, Pythagoras, as we know, we've talked about Pythagoras as the guy involved in the triangles. You know, second year, year eight maths. We all talked about Pythagoras in the triangles, but. He was actually more than just the triangle man. He was actually a music man as well. And he really thought that music and maths were, were mystic, had mystical powers. He was also very into the concept of ratio and how, how the ratios worked. He believed that the stars and the sun uh, and the earth, the stars and the sun revolved around the earth and there was this perfect ratio and he called it the music of the spheres that when these ratios were at their best the sound was spectacular and that mortal man couldn't hear these sounds because our ears were so corrupted but he was able because he was the reincarnation of Apollo and as such he could hear these sounds the sounds of the spheres that nobody else could hear. He was the guy also who turned music, which we think was pretty chaotic, 
before Pythagoras into something that was ordered. And we've talked about before with the whole concept of notation that before notation, music was pretty chaotic. So let's talk about this story. Now this story is potentially fictitious, but it gives us a very good insight to what Pythagoras did. So Pythagoras is walking down the street and he hears a blacksmith and a blacksmith is hitting some metal and he's making this sound. And he's intrigued by these two sounds. And so he goes in to the blacksmith's forge to see what's going on. And the blacksmith is hitting two pieces of metal. The higher note is exactly half the size of the bigger note. And he goes, whoa, isn't this interesting? Here we have two sounds, which are actually the same sound, but one is higher than the other. So that's a perfect ratio of two to one. And so we can talk about that being red, and we can talk about that being light red. It's the same color, same note, just higher. Lost you yet? If I do the phrase the next octave up, is that where we're at? Yep, exactly. So he thought, this is fantastic, I've got a good ratio here, two to one. What happens if I take that piece of metal and I divide it by other perfect ratios. So the three perfect ratios are two to one, three to four, and two to three. And if you are an architect or a painter, you know all about these ratios because they, they work best. They, 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 they feel best to the eye. They're, they're, these perfect, they're called perfect ratios for a reason because they are, they're solid. They're, they're, they're the fundamentals of, of so much. So anyway, he took that piece of metal and he divided it by three or four and he got this note. Now that's a different note, but it's still, it's a perfect interval. Now we call that a perfect fourth. So he then took that, so we can call that yellow say. Mm -hmm. He took that single note again and he said, Okay, let's try another ratio. And this ratio he did was two to three. And he got this note. And that's another perfect ratio on a perfect interval. We call that a fifth. There's five notes between that one and that one. And he went, whoa. And we can call that green. So we now have red, yellow, green, and light red for want of a, a visual idea. And so he decided that he would take that piece of metal again and he would divide it by two, third, two to three and divide it and divide it and divide it and divide it and divide it. And he would see what happened. So the, that was the first, that perfect interval. Then he takes that one and divides it and keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going. What he discovered was the first seven of those divisions are the white notes on the piano mm. and then the divisions after that are what we would call the black notes on the piano and what he discovered was that there were 12 divisions before he got back to that original note so if you're wondering why there are 12 notes in an octave the seven notes of the what we would call the white keys which are those first seven divisions 
and then the five others, which we would call the black keys, which equal 12 in total before we get back to that original. Pythagoras is one hell of a guy. I just feel for the poor blacksmith who was trying to trying to do a job for a horse, <laughs> and Pythagoras keeps chopping up his horses, his, 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 the horseshoes. I think that's hysterical. Yes, you can imagine, can't you? But what he discovered was when he came back to that original note, it wasn't exact. It wasn't exactly in the same place as the original note. I mean, higher in the octave, but still not absolutely accurate. A little bit like two o'clock and two o'clock. Not absolutely accurate. And we call that little distance between those two notes, the Pythagorean comma. Hmm. It's that tiny little bit that makes it not perfectly, doesn't fit absolutely perfectly. Now, I'm gonna get you to play this Pythagorean comma. So if you go on to, to YouTube, you can actually hear the Pythagorean comma. So this note, these two notes are meant to sound absolutely like one note. In fact, you can hear that it's a dissonance. It's a, the notes are very, very close, but not absolutely exact. So Andy, I could hear just like an inkling of not matching. Is that exactly. what I like? Like exactly what you mean. So the fact that you're hearing that with those two notes is showing you that those notes are not absolutely the same. That there is there is a a comma a, a discrepancy between those two notes. So it reminds me of tuning my guitar. Yes, very much like that. Very much like that, and. That, as I said, is called the Pythagorean comma. So let's leave that for a second and talk about another aspect of music. There's going to be a few, a whole lot of little hiccups in this, in this podcast. So let's leave Pythagoras and his comma for a second. And let's talk about how to play a note and what a note is. So if I play a note on the piano... That's just not a low C that I'm playing. That low C is made up of a whole series of other notes. They're called either overtones or the harmonics. It's a little bit like a prism. You know when you, you have a prism and you put some light through it, you end up with a rainbow. And so although it looks like white light, it's actually a whole bunch of, a series of colors. And we, we understand that and we accept that. It's exactly the same thing with music. So if you have a single note, that single note isn't just made up of that one note. It's made up of a whole series of notes, as I said, called the overtones or the harmonic series. And let's just talk about, for one more second, about the concept of good acoustics and bad acoustics. So if you're going out for dinner, you want a room that has soft floors, that have white tablecloths that have mushy chairs that have thick curtains because if you're at a restaurant a full restaurant that has all of that you're actually going to be able to speak to the people that you're having dinner with because you talk and all of those sounds get sucked into all those soft furnishing a musician never wants to play in a restaurant like that because what happens is they play and all their sounds get sucked away it's a real dead sound a musician 
wants to play in a room that has floorboards and pews, a cathedral, you know, think of a cathedral, fantastic place to play. In fact, I always laugh about when I was first learning the clarinet, I used to always go to the loo as I started practicing. Where's the best place in your house to play? The bathroom. It's got no soft furnishings whatsoever. And I sounded brilliant in the bathroom. I didn't sound quite so brilliant when I went back to my bedroom, which had, you know, carpets and plush curtains and a doona and all mm. the rest of it. But in the loo, I sounded fantastic. The reason why musicians like playing in the loo rather than playing in your restaurant that's going to make conversation easier is that when you play a sound in a cathedral, the sound comes out of your instrument and it hits those hard surfaces and those sounds shatter. And the reverberation and all the sounds that you hear are those sounds shattering. So acoustics that are fantastic for a musician are terrible for dining and vice versa. And those sounds that are shattering are those overtones. Now the reason I'm going on and talking about that is because when you play, say, that low C, the sounds that you are hearing are that perfect fourth and that perfect fifth and that octave. So those the first overtones you're hearing are actually those things that Pythagoras discovered. Those, the, the ratio of one to two, the ratio to two to three, and the ratio of the three to four. So those sounds are actually in the beginning of that note. It's really interesting, and I love your analogy about prism and the mm. rainbow, because that does make sense. So I can think of that, an audio version of that in a way. Right, exactly, exactly. Good, I'm pleased. So there was one other thing that Pythagoras discovered. He realized that first interval of a fifth where he got that piece of metal and divided it by two to three that was perfect and the next one was pretty good and the next one wasn't quite as good and as he kept on dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing the perfection of those intervals became less and less and less good so that by the time he got around to number 11 and 12 the the fifth was getting worse and worse and worse, mm. okay? Now, that's really important when we talk about equal temperament. So just visualize in your head a, um, a pie chart where all the pies aren't, are not absolutely perfect. They start perfect, and by the end of it, it looks like you're pretty drunk, okay? So if you can do that for me, we will have a better understanding of what's going on. Pythagoras had discovered the way that music can work in what we call a scale. He discovered that there was this little hiccup, what we call the Pythagorean comma. And he went, you know what? I don't need to solve this Pythagorean comma. Not that he called it that at the time. Um, let somebody else discover that and, and work out how to solve that problem. Let him, he'll go back to his triangles. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, but interestingly, the Chinese had already discovered this whole concept and solved the problem of the Pythagorean comma, but didn't, weren't interested in using these 12 notes in their music. Because as we've talked about before, most Chinese music is in what we call the pentatonic scale, the concept of the five. And for 
a lot of, of Chinese culture, the five is not only, the first five notes are not only um, five notes, but also very symbolic in a lot of their music. So for them, yeah, solved it, move on, but we're going to stick with those five notes. So Rob, maybe we can listen to a little bit of, of Chinese music, which is in the pentatonic. ancient Greeks until pretty much the end of the first millennium music revolved around those seven notes as I said those those first seven cuts that Pythagoras discovered those pie charts the, the white notes on the piano and music um, as we've listened to before was quite simple so let's now listen to a little bit of medieval music having a listen to the simplicity of the music from this period Jolly that. Isn't it jolly? Yeah. I don't know how jolly the Middle Ages were, but at least the music well, was. Or maybe it was, you know, a, a bit of a, you know, a prancing off to my execution. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking more of a fate, but you know, yeah, <laughs> either way. So it's around this time at the end of the first millennium into the second millennium and onwards, and we've talked about this too, that the church wanted their music to sound more glorious than secular music. Up until this time, secular music and religious music was quite similar. And the monks wanted music to sound more beautiful. They were going to make it have more than one line, as we've talked about before. And the intervals that they allowed were the intervals of the octave, the fourth and the fifth. We've talked about that before, but now you understand why it was the octave, the fourth and the fifth, because they were those perfect intervals that Pythagoras discovered with those perfect ratios. And because they are perfect, they made sense. So if you think about the Middle Ages, if they couldn't understand something, it was too scary. So the fourth, the fifth and the octave, they could understand 
the distance and they could understand the tuning. And so when they started to, musicians started to add other voices to their melodies, the voices that they were allowed to use, the distance was an octave, the fourth and the fifth. Let's have a listen. It's interesting, and I remember you were mentioning the whole role of church and music was about being closer to God. Exactly. So the perfection I get, you know, it can only have a perfect note to have that holy interaction. Well, that's exactly right. And it was also that it now made religious music different from secular music and more beautiful because it had this layering effect. Now, that sounds really beautiful, but it still sounds quite hollow, quite open. It doesn't have sort of a luxurious sound to it. And the reason it doesn't have a luxurious sound to it is because it doesn't have what we call thirds and sixths. Now, thirds and sixths uh, mean that when you play a note, you have three notes up or you have six notes up. I'll play that for you on the piano. So if we have the first note, three notes up is this. And here we have that note again, and six notes up is this. I suppose, Rob, the question you're going to ask is, why can't you have music with thirds and sixths? What's so scary about that? Ah, I mean, I know the answer, but why don't you tell the listeners, Andy? <laughs> the reason that thirds and sixths were banned, literally banned, was because going back to that pie chart, when you get the third note in that pie chart. So if you've got, I'm gonna use letter names because it's just easier. So if we have C as your bottom note, and you have G, that's your perfect fifth, that's your perfect into, um, ratio of two to three. If you're gonna stick the third note in the middle of it, the E, the E is further around the pie chart, and so less perfect. So it doesn't fit nicely between the C and the G. It's a, instead of it sounding beautiful, it actually sounds wrong. Now, I can't play it for you. You're looking at the, my piano. I can't play it for you. It's sort of, is it like C and D and a half? Is that what we're looking for? It's like C and E and a little bit. It's like that comma. It's just a little bit up or a little bit down. It's not in the right place to fit nicely between the C and the G. And the last thing we want in the church is imperfection. Imperfection and not sounding nice, yes. So, so that's the reason why these thirds and sixths were banned because they were further around that pie chart, meaning that the sound isn't so fantastic. Okay. 
So we then have this incredible composer who we have talked about before, John Dunstable. Remember we talked about John Dunstable? JD, remember yeah. him well. <laughs> so John Dunstable was this composer, um, English composer, who decided um, that he was going to break with these rules and he was going to write music using these thirds and sixths. So his boss is Henry V. Henry V has just beaten the French in Agincourt. They come back and John Dunstable, this incredible composer, decides that he's going to compose this piece of music using these band thirds and sixths. But he could only do it with voice. And what he had to do was to teach his singers how to move their voices from the natural place that a third would fit to an unnatural place so it fitted nicely between the one and five. Do you get that? Let's have a listen and I'm sure okay. it will make sense. So when you, when you have a listen to it, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear the fact that it's going to sound absolutely fine to you. But what you can imagine, this is 1416. He teaches his singers to move their note from the natural place to the unnatural place. Something that terrified the church because in doing so, it's taking music from the natural, the shakuhachi, to the unnatural. So the church was scared that the fabric of society would be uh, negatively impacted by uh, these playing of imperfection? Yes, absolutely. Because remember, we're talking about a time where if things, if you can't see it or explain it, it's not right and, and can't be done. And the fact of moving things from the perfect place to the imperfect place has ramifications that we will be talking about that affected music for centuries. So this, sound, this sounds like uh, Dunstable was a 15th century version of Elvis. Breaking down barriers, they're all gonna go to hell. It's like a... Absolutely, he was gyrating everywhere. All right, let's have a listen. So when you heard that, did you feel that that was much more luscious and chocolatey than what you heard before? That it had, it sounded much more like the music that we are used to rather than that other example of the, the medieval music. 
there was definitely a layer of ganache on top. It was it, to bring it back to uh, the third C of coffee, cake, and culture, or the second C. I mean, no, I like it. You can you can hear it. You can yeah, hear it. There's a lot more. There's a lot more to it. So luckily, Henry V loved this music. He thought it was fantastic. He loved the thought of these thirds and sixths in the music, and maybe it was the fact that Dunstable in England could break these laws because he was so far away from Rome, which made all the laws. If maybe if he had been in Rome, the church would have been too close and he wouldn't have been able to break the laws. But all the way in England, he could. I've got to say that music definitely, compared to the earlier stuff, had a lot more depth to it. Exactly. And that's the thirds and sixths that were added. And we could have forgotten about those thirds and sixths except for another trick of fate, which was that... John Dunstable um, also worked for the king's brother, who happened to be the Duke of Bedford. And Henry V said to the Duke of Bedford, go off to this newly conquered area of France and take your musician with you. And so John Dunstable ended up going to France. And on the continent, he then showed the French and, and everybody else these concepts of thirds and sixths, and they spread like wildfire throughout Europe, and everybody loved these thirds and sixths and the way that Dunstable had, had written this music. So music totally changes, and soon thirds and sixths are commonplace, but only for instruments that um, where you can move your string, like a, a, a viol in those days, or your voice, not keyboard instruments. Nothing that is set. And we'll talk about that in a second because we're now moving into the Renaissance period and we're now moving into Italy. Can I just say before yes. we go, go to Italy, yes. how refreshing it is to have a uh, head of an army bring along their musician. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 a, what a lovely thought to have like, you know, I'm bringing a composer with. Yes, well, you know, you've got to have, if you think, it's a really good point, but if you think about the role of a musician in society in those days, really important because when you have dinner or when you're chatting or when you've got friends over, do you put music on? Absolutely. Well, the only way they had music was if they had the musicians. So the musician was a very important part of, of the running of a court. Yes, it's not like when you go, you know, I don't have my musicians in my back corner to, to come out when I'm having dinner, but I might put the radio on. So it's the same sort of concept. So musicians really, up until the 20th century, were really the radios of the day. So if you think about that, it makes, it makes more sense. But let's move to the Renaissance. The Renaissance is a period of, of enlightenment. It's huge discoveries in the arts and science and music and maths and there are all this experimentation going on throughout the whole of Europe but especially in Italy and this relationship between maths and music and the arts is becoming very very important. Think about perspective, the concept of perspective in art comes about in the Renaissance where you suddenly have paintings where you can see a foreground and a, and a middle ground and a background and that's all to do with the relationship with with maths and music starts to become much much more complicated and composers are throwing sounds at each other trying to trying to make music as complex as possible 
Let's have a listen to a little bit uh, by a composer called Josquin Dupré, a, a Renaissance composer. So this is all well and good, except that the church was right. And adding these thirds and sixths and other strange intervals started to create havoc with music. And that Pythagorean comma started to rear its ugly head and cause absolute chaos. Let's have a little, another little aside. And this little aside now is to talk about the concept of keys. And that's not something in your back pocket. In music, all music is made up of, of one key or other. So you may have heard of C major or A minor or G major or B flat minor or whatever. Each of those is a specific key and it has a specific make makeup. All major keys are made up of the same sequence and all minor keys are made up of the same sequence. And I'll just play you a major key and a minor key just to re-jog your memories of what they sound like. A major key and a minor key. So that's a harmonic minor key. What happens because of this concept of the Pythagorean comma is that instrumentalists who play keyboard instruments, when they tune their instrument, they have to make choices on to how they're going to tune their instrument to make it sound best because of this comma. Because there's no way of them making an equal distance between one note and another because that's very, very difficult and they've only got their ears to use. And so everybody's tuning was different. So if I, if you came into me and played with something for me, Rob, my tuning, the way I tune my instruments is going to be different from the way you tune your instrument. It's fundamentally going to be different. And not only that, depending on what key you're in is going to change the notes. So let me explain this to you. If I have C major, my C is going to be perfect and my G is going to be perfect. The G is the fifth note. It's the second most important note in C major. They're going to be perfect. If I then go to G major, which has one sharp, that G, and we're playing on the same keyboard, that G is going to be pretty good because it's the fifth note of that C major. It's going to make sense. And the fifth of G major is D, and that's going to be pretty good. But if I then play in the key of, say, 
E flat major, that G in E flat major is way around that pie chart. And so the that G is going to sound really bad in, G, in E flat major. And if I then go into another crazy key, A flat major, that G is really bad because that G is the second last note. And so going around that pie chart, the difference between that G in G major and that G in A flat major is almost a semitone. So I'm mystified as to how this was solved. Ah, equal temperament. So if you can imagine that every key you play in, you basically have to change the, the, the tuning because a C isn't a C isn't a C isn't a C. The C depends on what key you are in. And this is the reason that in the Renaissance period, most music was written in keys that had only no sharps and flats or one or two sharps and flats because they were the safe keys. Tempering is the process of fitting all the 12 notes of the octave, and we've worked out why there are 12 notes in the octave, neatly, not perfectly, but neatly, so that you can play a few keys nicely without having to change and retune your instruments every time you're playing a different key. Now we're going to listen to an excerpt now. Now these are these two crazy English guys playing an organ piece. They're going to play it to start with in what we call mean temperament. Mean temperament is, as I said, the tempering where things are okay, but not really great. And then we're going to play it in what we call equal temperament, which we'll talk about later. Now, you, if you can't hear a major difference between the first and the second, what I think you need to listen to is the first you sound, it sounds like the sound is tight, like you almost want to sort of curl up in a ball because it sounds yuck. But the second one sounds much more relaxing. And they're playing a piece in what we call F minor. F minor has four flats, a really bad key in the Renaissance period. They certainly sound very different, Andy. They do, don't they? And you can really, I always say to people that, as I said, the first one sounds tight and, and like, and the second one you sort of can, you feel more relaxed. And so that first one is in what we call mean tone, which means, as I said, it's the, the, the organ is tuned, so it might sound okay in C major and G major. So there, that's the problem with this tuning at the moment, that everybody is trying to organise a way of tuning their instrument so you can go from one place to another 
and be able to have a C being roughly a C being roughly a C. But this is not the case at the moment. I want to give you one more example of this, if you don't mind. I want to play for you um, a Saraband by Couperin, French composer. And again, I'm going to play you two excerpts, one in mean tone and one in what we call equal tone or equal temperament. And what we also have when we play mean tone is that sometimes we have what we call wolf notes where the string has been poured so much into the wrong direction that you hear a howl in the music. And this is in G minor, which is quite a nice key in the Renaissance period. But once again, have a listen to what it sounds like in mean tone. It's really interesting because I can't quite get my fingers on the difference, but there is a difference. Absolutely. And the difference is, is that in the mean tone example, the distance between all the notes isn't exact. So you have some distances that work nicely. So they've tuned them so they work nicely. And there are some distances that don't work nicely. So they, they tune in what you would call fifths. So some of the fifths work well and some of them don't work quite so well. So what is needed is some way of breaking that octave into 12 parts so that each part is equal. Now that might sound like quite an easy thing to do, but the only thing they have to do this are their ears. So there's no, there's no computer to help them or tuning fork to help them or anything. They're having to learn how to do this tuning solely by their ears. And it's incredibly difficult. And between the 1550s and the 1700s, all most of the great mathematicians, the, all the music theorists, everybody is trying to work out how to break this octave evenly. And finally, a 
contemporary of Galileo, a guy called um, Simon Steven, who you may or may not have heard about, but you should, probably should have another one of these guys that we should have heard about because he was the Dutch founder of the modern decimal system. So pretty important when it comes to, to the way we live today, but he was the guy who worked out the distance between one note and another. Now I'm going to give you the formula. It's 1.059463094 times the frequency value of the note below, which is needed to create the perfect distance between every note. It was one point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that was exactly it. They, they had the, the, the number now, but they had absolutely no way of doing anything with that number. And then we get a really important guy. A guy who you may have heard of, Rob, called J.S. Bach. Ah, Bachmeister, yes. That's right, well. know him well. So what Bach did, Bach for a, a period of time was working in East Germany, in, in Kotham, and he was working for a 23-year-old a count who happened to be a Calvinist. The Calvinists don't have music in their religious settings. So Bach didn't have a lot to do because all the, the music that he would write for the church wasn't needed. So he had a lot of time to fiddle around. And he and his students started tuning their clavier, their, their keyboard, and tuning and tuning to see what they could do. And have you ever heard of a piece of music called the Well-Tempered Clavier? I personally haven't, but I wonder if it's familiar when I hear it. I'm sure it is, and I'm sure that a lot of people out there would have heard of it. Now, this is a piece of music that he wrote in um, 1722. And it's an absolute game changer. Because this piece of music has a prelude and a fugue written for every single key on the keyboard. So there's a prelude and fugue for C major and C minor and C sharp major and C sharp minor and D major and D minor and blah, 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 all the way up. What Bach is saying to the world when he wrote this is I have tuned this harpsichord to well temperament. I have tuned it where it's not perfect, it's not equal, but I have tuned it in a way that I can sit at my keyboard and play a piece in any key and it's not going to sound bad. Now this is equivalent to the, the four minute mile in the sense that when Bach did this, it didn't mean that suddenly everyone all around the world could tune their harpsichords to this tempering. But what it did was it meant that everybody knew that it was capable. The four minute mile, when it was finally broken, doesn't mean that I can now run a four minute mile. It meant that it was now possible for man to do it. And this had an enormous impact in the world. And Bach was so clever because on the, in the keys that were going to be more perfect, he writes music where you can hear the perfection of the keys. And then in keys that are going to be a little less perfect, he changes the way he writes the music so you don't hear the imperfections quite as, as, as much. So we're going to hear now a little bit of Bach's prelude. And we're going to hear prelude number one in C major 
and then we're going to hear prelude in A flat major. So A flat major being that key that we heard before that was so horrible, we're going to hear it in something that is potentially like Bach's tuning. We can't obviously emulate it because we don't really know it, but what we think could potentially be his tuning. the fact that he he has a well-tempered harpsichord and he could tune it and everything sounded great absolutely oh not great pretty good all right near enough's good enough Bach. (laughs) but as i said and we just read this well-tempered clavier and everyone played it when they were kids and i don't think most people realize how impactful this piece was, how important this piece was. And not only was it so important that he wrote 24, and then he went, you know, I'm just going to prove to you exactly how clever I am. And he wrote another 24. There are actually 48 preludes and fugues written on this well-tempered instrument. Hmm. So quite, quite phenomenal. So the concept of the term well-temperament usually means when there are some sort of irregularities but no key is really impure. No key has such bad impurities that they really stick out like a, a sore thumb. So quite phenomenal. And that means that we're getting closer and closer and closer to, as you say, perfection. But perfection comes from a very strange source. Perfection comes from something that's not musical at all. In the 19th century, we have the Industrial Revolution hitting Europe. And finally in the Industrial Revolution, we have machinery that is able to make instruments that can take um, Simon Stevens 1.0, whatever it is, and make instruments that are actually tuned to equal temperament. And so throughout the 19th century, music starts to be tuned to what we would call equal temperament, where every single note... So we've now taken music totally away from the natural because we have made it so every single note has an equal space between each other. And in doing so, we've taken it from the natural place that Dunstable had when he moved those thirds and sixths to a place where not a single note is in the normal natural place. Because if you move one octave, you have to move another and have to move another and have to move another. So everything has been spaced. So when I played for you at the beginning and I played you, and I said to you, you know, that that's the octave and that that's this perfect interval and that's this perfect interval. They're perfect intervals in equal temperament. They're not actually perfect intervals if we're talking about the world in general. 
because those chime bars are tuned to equal temperament. It's making sense, Andy, and I, yes, I do still have that ongoing confused face, but it does make sense. And I, you know, the, I, I get the moving from the natural to the unnatural. And it, somehow I'm reminded of theatre troops that do things with garbage bins and things like that and play music, with, which is kind of closer to the natural world, but it's trying to mimic the unnatural world with familiar tunes and things like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. I do. And, and that leads to a really interesting point because what happened in the 19th century is that you had throughout the whole of Europe and let's face it, the whole of the world, ethnic groups playing in their own tuning. So if you go around Europe, every little little town and little village had their own bands and their own little ensembles playing their own ethnic music with their own ethnic sound. And once equal temperament really got a hold in the big cities and what happened was equal temperament almost spread like a plague and there were musicians who really did think it was like a plague and spread throughout society. So those interesting tunings from little towns and villages started to disappear as they started tuning their instruments to this thing called equal temperament. And as a result, we have composers like Bartok, who once recording comes about at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, who goes into all of these little places and makes recordings of these sounds, knowing that they're going to disappear because all those sounds are going to change to the homogeny of equal temperament and there are a lot of composers who felt that they didn't want equal temperament because everything sounds the same they wanted the difference the the quirkiness of music under mean tone and world temperament but almost all the music we have from the 19th century onwards could not have been written if we didn't have equal temperament because the, the chords, the chromaticism, the chordal structures became so complicated that if you didn't have a perfection of notes and an, an equality of notes, those sounds would have sounded insane. So equal temperament is why our music in the West is totally different from all other musics. Because as I said, we took music that was simple and manipulated it to give us something that is highly, highly complex. While most societies in the world kept with the simplicity of their music, it's not better or worse, it's just a one more factor that us in the West have not been happy with the natural and, and manipulated the natural to give us something that is unnatural. And as a result, something that is highly sophisticated and incredibly different from where it all started. It's fascinating, and it's absolutely fascinating. Because, it, like, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of sort of mirroring the development of society. It very much is. And, and, and we see that, you know, saying that we see that so much in society. I mean, I can give you a crazy, insane example. The Baroque period. The Baroque period believed that, you know, if you were a king, if you were Louis Fourteenth, you would have your trees clipped to an inch of their lives, you know, being beautifully curled and whatever. 
they believed that was natural because what they were doing was taking nature and turning it into something that they can manipulate. That's what we do all the time in the West. We take nature and we manipulate it. And we do it in music as well. We did it in music. And as a result, we have the music that we have. Thanks, Andy. I'm really, like, I'm, I'm getting somewhere. I understand. And I, I think that this this one, Rob, I always say when I talk about um, equal temperament, is there's that light bulb moment with the people I'm talking to where they suddenly go, oh, you're making sense. And I saw your light bulb moment. I It's flickering. But yeah, <laughs> I think you might need another piece of chocolate cake to actually mm. turn it on properly. But I hope I have at least giving you food for thought about how different our music is compared to all other music. I certainly have, Andy, and don't get me wrong, another piece of chocolate cake would go down lovely right now, but uh, more importantly, I think I've, I wouldn't say an understanding, I get to an extent equal temperament, and obviously I did not know about the significance of it. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody. I hope I haven't boggled your minds too much. Um, thank you once again for listening to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. Thanks, Rob, for um, persevering with this talk because it is, as I said, mind, a bit mind-boggling. And I look forward to seeing you all next time. Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can hear us on Spotify and also wherever you listen to your podcasts coffee cake and culture the podcast just put it in your search engine or into your podcast engine you will find us all episodes from the past and there's lots more to come thanks everyone and see you next time bye podcast has been produced by etales.com.au that's www.etales.com.au does your company or organization or even yourself need a podcast contact rob at etales.com.au